If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Uh, We're currently teaching through Jesus' most famous teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, contrary to what some people might think, the sermon is not teaching you how to get into the kingdom of God. This is not a list of what you must do to get God's approval. Uh, The Bible tells us that God graciously offers us his kingdom by his grace, and he invites us. It doesn't matter who we are, what we've done. It is actually in spite of what we've done. He invites us, anyone, to be a part of that kingdom uh, through the work of his son, Jesus. So that's not what this sermon is about. The sermon is also not about uh, rules uh, to keep you in the kingdom of God or how we stay in the kingdom of God. Rather, it is a description of the character and conduct of those who belong to God's kingdom. It's what the life of a disciple looks like. It's a description of what it means to follow Jesus. And um, I think really it describes what God is wanting to do in us. It's, it's trying to cast a vision for our lives. I think so often as Christians, we can kind of settle into a status quo uh, of just life as a Christian. And uh, we can live in such a way that we aren't challenged. And I think it's because of a lack of vision. And Jesus cast this beautiful vision for us of what God is making us into, his plans for us. And if you look at the the grand narrative of scripture, we see that God uh, has big, big plans for his people uh, to rule and reign over a new heaven and a new earth with Christ. This incredible privilege that will take power, wisdom. It will take uh, deep, deep godly character. And see, that's what this sermon is all about. It's a preparation for that work that God has for us in the ages to come, to rule and to reign with Christ, to become now what God is making us into. So this sermon has been used for centuries to shape and form God's people into the way of Jesus. And we believe that that is what God will do for us as well as we study through it. Um, As we've been saying throughout these teachings, Jesus' sermon is not so much about doing. Again, it's not rules to keep so that you stay in the kingdom, but it is about being. It's about being transformed into the way of Jesus. I've been saying this again and again, but it's about becoming a people who do the right thing because that's the kind of people they are. A people who do righteousness and justice because that's the kind of people they have become. Because of God's spirit and his grace working upon them. Now this morning we're coming into the last section of Jesus' sermon where Jesus gives us uh, four different exhortations about entering into his way of life that he has described here in the sermon. Um, He presents us with two paths, two trees, two kinds of people, and two kinds of builders. And he exhorts us to the arduous path that leads to life. He exhorts us to be healthy trees that bear good fruit, to be doers of the word and not simply those who listen but don't obey, and lastly, to be wise builders that build our lives on his person and his teaching. So this morning, we're just going to look at the first of these exhortations, but these are all going to be very similar in in the sense that Jesus is calling us to action. Now, he begins by putting up for us two ways of living or being. And I'll read it again. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So Jesus presents us two ways of living or being, and these are contrasted ways. One that appears to be better because of its ease. It's um, in my head for some reason. I just kept on thinking of that scene in Beauty and the Beast where Belle's dad is on his way to that convention, invention convention. Um, and you know, he's like got his horse and he's going, and there's like this like beautiful, nice path that has sunshine and everything. And he's like, no, that can't be the way. And he looks down like this like dark howling wind path and he's like oh that must be the way right uh and that's just like in my head all week i'm like yeah two paths beauty and the beast but uh (laughs) or led zeppelin there are two paths you can go now but in the long run these are the things running through my head just to let you in on my weirdness but one is better to us because we see it as easy it's a wide path the sun is shining it looks like the right way to go right uh, any, you know, you'd be a fool to not choose this path, it would seem. And then there's the other way. It's difficult. It's narrow. It's, it's hard. It's going to take effort. It's uncomfortable. But Jesus said it's the way that actually leads to life. And remember, the word life that Jesus has been using in this sermon is not just living, but it's the life of flourishing. It's the full life. It's the good life. It's the Makarios, the blessed life. So Jesus exhorts his listeners to the more difficult path that leads to life. Now, I think the first question that we should be asking ourselves immediately is, well, what path am I walking? Am I walking the easy path? Am I coasting? Am I comfortable? Or am I walking the difficult path? Now, when you look at this saying of Jesus, it, it really is typical wisdom language. Well, you know, one wise man once said, there are two paths that you can take in life. You know, you, you can hear like Confucius, you know, or Solomon saying something like this. this is actually found in uh, Solomon's writings. Similar saying. And I think oftentimes we view the easy path as a path that denounces idolatry. It's the path of lingerie and red lipstick. It's the path of greed and licentiousness. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, there is the, that's the easy street. And, you know, maybe you have like uh, images of Pilgrim's Progress in, in your mind here when you see that path. Like, oh, it looks good, but it's worldly, wise man. And some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Pilgrim's Progress, uh, very graphic um, story told by uh, John Bunyan describing the Christian life and it being like a journey and, and it, you know, walking these paths and paths that you can take that look good, but in the end, they're filled with just the wisdom of the world that leads to death and ensnaring. It's, it's wisdom literature. And sometimes I think, actually not sometimes, I think that most of us approach Jesus' teaching here in that way. Oh, it looks good, but it's really actually bad. It looks light, but it's actually dark. Rather, could it be the path that is easy and wide is the way that a person who applies Jesus' words only to their outward life is walking? You think about the whole sermon. Jesus is talking about the way of the righteousness of the Pharisees and his deeper righteousness that goes to the heart, that changes the character 
that examines the inner person and isn't only concerned with the outer person. It doesn't make sense that all of a sudden Jesus would just turn this corner at the end of the sermon and kind of teach like a fire and brimstone, doom and gloom type of sermon. I think rather Jesus is describing the easy path, the wide path is a person who doesn't take to heart what Jesus is saying and only lives the righteousness of the Pharisees. They play the Christian religious game of talking the talk. They show up to services and meetings. They go through the program or they're going through the motions. They do like, you know, the acts of piety that Jesus talks about, acts of charity, acts of piety, but not the work of applying Jesus' teaching to the inner person, to the heart. So then the path that is difficult and narrow may actually from the outside look the same as the other path, but it is in fact filled with arduous work. It is the path of deep introspection about one's heart motives and the inner person. It is a life that is not satisfied with checking the boxes of spirituality, holiness, and piety as ends in themselves but is concerned more with wholeness of person and purity of heart. A single-minded devotion is what this person is after. A single-minded devotion to God that is rooted in the heart but expresses itself in everything one does. And this life is a life of continual repentance. Now, uh, in church Communities, we think of repentance kind of as a bad word. Like, oh, you have to repent. Well, don't get to the place where you have to repent. You know, turn before that. Repentance is as simply as changing your mind. That's actually what it means. And it means to be confronted with God's truth, God's way, and to make a change of mind. To see God's way and to say, you know what? I'm going to turn from the way that I think is right and good and true. And I'm going to follow God's way. And so the Christian life, the, what, the life of following Jesus in this narrow path, is a life of continual repentance. We examine ourselves by God's word, and when we don't match up to it, we turn, we repent, we change our minds. Correcting our way of thinking, speaking, and acting at the heart level. Until we find that our first responses and thoughts are loving and living in the way of Jesus as described in this great sermon. So this is the difficult way. But it is the way that leads to life, to flourishing fullness. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. Now, we come to this crossroads, right? So here it is. This is the wisdom of Jesus. Which path are you on? I think when I read this exhortation from Jesus, what I want to do is speculate how many people actually are saved. Oh, the narrow path. Yeah, the hard way. Okay, Jesus is exclusive. And all of a sudden, I want to think about how exclusive the gospel is. And what about, you know, well, when I was a kid, you know, we talked about the pygmies in, you know, Australia. Now it's not kosher to talk about the pygmies. So, you know... Certain people that live in certain regions of the world that have never heard the gospel. What about them? And we always want to turn it to somebody else. We always want to turn it to the masses. That's not the purpose of Jesus' exhortation here. Jesus' words are an exhortation to me, an exhortation to you to enter the way of life, to his way of flourishing taught here in this sermon. 
The words are meant to go inward and search our own hearts so that we say, is that me, Lord? Am I following the way of Jesus? Is my life in line with the Sermon on the Mount or am I more in the way of the Pharisees? I'm not living an unrighteous life from the outside looking in. I'm doing all the same things. But the question, are we living out the sermon? Are we practicing the way of Jesus at a heart level? Jesus wants to make this so personable, you guys. And, and I think for a lot of this sermon, we have been talking in terms of our community and what it looks like for us to be salt and light, what it looks like for us to be a colony of heaven in the country of death, to be witnesses of the kingdom of God. But it's almost as if Jesus is preaching this sermon and all of a sudden he turns and he looks you in the eye and he says, will you follow me? Will you follow me? He makes it so personable. Will we follow him? Will we listen to his words? Will we let them go down to the heart level? So it begs the question, are you entering the narrow way? Are you following Jesus? Are you taking his word? And we're talking specifically here about the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Are you taking Jesus' words and examining your life with them? Are you taking his word, the promises, the warnings with the seriousness they deserve? Or are we giving mere mental assent to the things that he is teaching? Remember when we were talking about peacemaking? We were saying how it's easy for us to think of peacemaking just as a communal thing. What happened in South Africa, you know, after the apartheid, that's a beautiful thing, the peacemaking that was done there. What's happened among, you know, African tribes in the north of Africa, that's a beautiful thing, peacemaking there. But the peacemaking that Jesus calls us to is not just a world peace UN type of vision, but it is the peace that causes me to cross this room and repent to my neighbor because I've been harboring bitterness. It's it's the peace that gets me up out of my seat, that gets me out of my house to cross town, to go meet face to face with somebody that I've had an altercation with online. It's that kind of everyday peacemaking that Jesus is calling to and calling us to. And so again, are we following the way of Jesus or are we giving mere mental assent? Oh yeah, I'm for peacemaking. Oh yeah, to be peaceful, great. Yeah, but is my life a life of peacemaking? Is my life a life of mercy is the question. Now, if I do not apply Jesus' words and teachings at the heart level, I will not experience the flourishing life that he promises here in this sermon. And I think that this is an issue, if not the supreme issue in the church. We hear the words of Jesus. We hear his promise of the good life, the flourishing life. And it's not a prosperity gospel, but it's a fullness of life. It's a joy in the midst of just the chaoticness of life. But I think we miss it 
because we only take Jesus' words at the skin-deep level. And we don't take the time to examine the heart. And maybe if we are passionate about Bible teaching and uh, learning, we're students of the scripture, we're more in the, in, in the habit of consumption over meditation and examination. We just want all we can get, but we don't take the time to sit with the word and to allow it to examine our hearts and our lives. So if I only apply Jesus' words and teachings at the heart level, I will not experience the flourishing life that he promises here in the sermon. Not only that, but listen, it's bigger than that. It's more dangerous than that. Not only that, but I will find that I am not following the way of Jesus at all. But in fact, following a path of self-righteous morality that ends in destruction and not in life. How tragic that we would miss the way of Jesus, having heard it again and again and again and again. It could be right under our noses, the promises of flourishing, the promises of life and fullness and joy to walk in the spirit and the way of Jesus, and we could miss it. Jesus doesn't want us to miss it. So the application of this section is probably varied for this group, right? So I'll ask, what does it look like for you to apply Jesus' sermon at the heart level? And what area are you resistant to his teaching? Let's just go through a few of these. Jesus' call to fidelity, to faithfulness. In our relationship to Yahweh, in our relationship to God, in our relationship to our neighbor, in our relationship to our spouse, our relationship to our family. Truthfulness. To be people who say what they mean and mean what they say. Forgiveness and mercy. Again, at the heart level. My neighbor, my friends my past friends, my parents, my brother, my sister, am I practicing forgiveness and mercy at the heart level? Then there's peacemaking peacemaking and reconciliation. Am I someone that stirs up strife and gossip and feeds distrust jealousy pride or am I someone that makes peace am I someone that is for reconciliation and bringing two people that are at odds to bring them together my person of peacemaking and reconciliation then of course there's the prayer the the heart that is uh, seeking to bless and do good to one's enemies is that me now, I, obviously, I think every one of us has enemies, uh, if not on the personal level, maybe on kind of the broad scheme. The liberals. The conservatives, right? Especially right now in our, in our, uh, in our nation. That is, gosh, the number one enemy. You're either on one side of the aisle or the other. 
Hopefully, if you're following Jesus, you're in the aisle instead of one side or the other. But are, do we want the best for those who are our enemies? Do we pray for their healing and their help? Humility. C.S. Lewis once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Are you the most important person to yourself? Do you think of yourself first? Are you worried about yourself, your way, your comfort, your benefit, your blessing above those of others? You're not following the way of Jesus. And so Jesus calls us to examine our lives at that heart level. Doing righteousness and justice. A people who are out to do the right thing, to have a right relationship with God, with one another. A people that help people that don't deserve it cost to themselves. So examining our lives at that heart level with these things, and this is just obviously a flyover of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, many in our culture might find many of Jesus' teachings on anger and forgiveness to be agreeable maybe even life-changing, but would mock and disdain Jesus' teaching on fidelity, purity, even meekness. But for Jesus' followers, he doesn't give us the option to cherry-pick and only apply the ones we agree with or we think will be good for us. When we do that, we are treating Jesus as a consultant on our life rather than our king, our savior, and our Lord, one that deserves our utter respect, allegiance, and obedience. Now, I don't think anyone in this room knows themselves well enough to be able to fully examine themselves in the way of Jesus. So this exhortation here even calls, I think, for life in community. There is this just side to humanity where we might know ourselves well, but we can't know ourselves completely because we only have, um, well, you know, we, we have a prejudiced view of ourselves, really. And so we need an outsider perspective. We need somebody to see, you know, in our blind spots for us and to tell us what we're really like. And so I might think that I'm following the way of Jesus at a heart level, but you know what I need? I need my neighbor, I need my brother, I need my sister, I need my wife, my spouse to come along, and I need them to help me examine my life. And this is very important not to just do self-examination, but examination in community to really see whether we're following in the way of Jesus or not. I think that's how we do this in a complete way. we don't want to make the mistake of simply cherry-picking Jesus' words. Tim Keller says this. He says, contemporary people tend to examine the Bible looking for things they can't accept. But Christians should reverse that. So often we're, we're the same way. We're looking at the Bible and we're trying to find all the ways that the Bible's wrong. Right? We're trying to find reasons that we don't have to obey the sexual ethic of the Bible. Because maybe our coworker that we really like. Well, I'm glad you like your coworker. Do you want them to be whole? 
Do you want them to know God? Do you want them to experience the flourishing, the fullness of Jesus? Well, then don't discount Jesus' words on sexuality. He made us. He knows how we work best. Jesus, the most fully functioning human being, the the most flourishing being that ever lived, was non-sexual. Jesus, right? He, He didn't have any sexual relationships, and yet he lived a full life. Yet we buy into this narrative in our culture that, oh, unless you, you know, experience um, sex and, and express your sexuality, you'll never have intimacy. It's BS. It's not true. It's a false narrative. We've been created by God. We've been created for God. And he knows how life works best. And so as believers, we reverse that. And we allow the Bible to examine us. looking for things God can't accept. He says, then the sweet grace offered, the beauty of his love will mean something to you. I think that's the case in my own life. I don't experience the sweet grace offered, the beauty of his love, because I'm still holding on to things just at that heart level that I haven't fully surrendered to the Lord. Maybe you're like me. So what am I saying? Please don't make this mistake of standing in judgment over the Bible, but bring yourself under the rule of our King Jesus and let him give you his good counsel. Let him give you his care as your king, as your shepherd. So, Jesus, the good shepherd, calls us to the narrow way to follow him at that heart level, that self-examination, bringing ourselves under the light and the scrutiny of his word. But here's the deal. True application of Jesus' teaching requires um, some exposure Um, It is uncomfortable. I mean, listen to these words here from David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Anyone that says that sincerely knows God's going to find some bad stuff in there. Right? Try me, test me, and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Correct me. Bring me to repentance to change. Lead me in your way. Or Psalm 51.10 Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. See, when I begin to apply the Sermon on the Mount to my life at the heart level that Jesus calls me to, It is arduous. It is narrow. It reveals how far I am from the holistic righteousness that God requires. It's painful. It is discouraging to see how selfish we are, how self-righteous we are, how covetous and greedy and proud we are.
When we see ourselves for who we are, it, I think it brings fear, it brings guilt, it brings condemnation. Maybe you begin to like, expose these things, or maybe the whole reason you don't want to do heart examination is because you know. You know how messed up you are <laughs> deep down inside. But this is where the power of the gospel comes in. And this is what the gospel tells us. You are dearly loved. You are dearly loved, not because you are lovely. Not because you have everything put together. Not because you have a pure heart. But because he has loved you. Because he loves you deeply. And you are not made a child of God because you earned it or because you deserve it, but because of God's kindness and because of his grace. Remember Titus. Now, Paul is obviously not talking about every person that's ever lived, but generally humanity and the things that are typical of humanity. He says, we were ourselves once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, and we passed our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's because of his kindness and his grace that you are a child. Jesus Christ came to rescue and redeem sinners. People that get it wrong and people that get it right. All of us. Through his life-giving sacrifice on the cross to save us from what we are, to make us into what we could never be on our own, to make us into something new, something beautiful, something glorious, as we've been seeing in the sermon. Now, the question is, if he showed this kindness to you when you were an enemy, a rebel, when sometimes you got it right, sometimes you got it wrong, do you think now as a child and a friend of God he's going to give up on you? I mean, that's the amazing thing about Psalm 139. In the beginning, David says, you have searched me and known me. Some of us are under an illusion that God doesn't actually know what's really going on deep down inside, or we fool ourselves into thinking that way, convince ourselves. But he already knows. He already knows. And so he's asking us to join him in his knowledge, his full knowledge of us, to confess it, to bring it out into the light. He will not give up on us when we confess, when we bring out our hearts before him to be searched by his light. The one who began a good work in you, as Paul says, will not fail to complete it. God is not shocked by how deeply rooted and ugly our sin is so that when he sees it, he'll cast us off or forsake us. Nope. Again, from Tim Keller, I love this. He says, through the gospel, we see that we are more flawed 
than we ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. And it's believing that, pressing into that. God knows how messed up we are, even now. Even having maybe sat in church our whole lives, maybe having heard the Sermon on the Mount many, many times, he knows that we're still messed up. He knows that we're still in process. He knows how deeply flawed we are, and yet we are more loved and accepted than we can possibly imagine. When I think about the Sermon on the Mount, I'm reminded of the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. And I think like the rich young ruler, oftentimes we look at our lives and we're thinking, I'm just missing one thing. I just need to add this key spiritual you know, discipline or this one thing. I just need to ditch this one sin and then I'll be good. And I think that that's kind of what the rich young ruler had in his mind. What do I lack? What's the one thing I lack? Jesus says, well, one thing you do lack. You know, sell everything you have. Give it all the poor. And then we, you know, elaborate on, oh, well, this guy had an idol. His money was his idol and all this stuff. And, and I think we kind of miss the main point there. What does Jesus say? How will this man enter into life? He says, you follow me. That's how you do it. That's how we enter into life. We follow Jesus. We take his words deep down at the heart level. We walk with Jesus. It's not that we take Jesus' words and then we just go off and figure them out, you know, and, and work them out in our lives and then we just live our isolated life apart from God. No, it is a relationship of working with him, following him, him walking with us through the journey of life, through this arduous, narrow, difficult path. I love what C.S. Well, Lewis once said. He said, our faith is not a matter of hearing what Jesus Christ said so long ago and trying to carry it out. Rather, the real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as Himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject His kind of life and thought, His Zoe, into you. Beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live man. And the part of you that doesn't like this is the part that is still ten. But the idea there, that's the right idea of Scripture. The journey of following Jesus, the journey of the Sermon on the Mount is a partnership with Jesus. It's through our relationship with him. It's through taking in again and again the personableness of the bleeding, dying Savior. It was for my sin that Jesus died. And now I am, as Paul said, compelled by grace to live out this life of righteousness that he purchased me for. But I do it in concert with Jesus. I do it following him, but him at my side, co-laboring work with him. As Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that works in you to will and to do his own good pleasure. This co-laboring, this cooperative work that the Lord is calling us to. 
So Jesus is calling each of us to this rigorous and narrow road, but not to walk it alone. He calls us to follow him, promises to be our companion all along the way, promises to never forsake us and to complete the good work he began in us. So here's what I want to do this morning as we close. We are going to take our time to worship the Lord, respond, take communion together as we normally do. But this morning I want us to kind of sit with this exhortation of Jesus. To sit with this sermon and think through our lives in light of Jesus' teaching. Where do I need to apply his teaching to my heart? Meditate on these verses. I'll read them again. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of truth. Lead me in the way that is everlasting. Or Psalm 51.10 again. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Let's, as we worship together, let's meditate on these words. And let's confess. Let's allow the Lord to search our hearts. Let's repent. Let's turn from these areas where we have only applied Jesus' teachings at a skin deep level. And let's call on the Lord for his grace and unfailing love to live out this exhortation of walking this path and following Jesus. So Lord, as we wrap up this morning, would you do that, Lord? Would you be that lamp that searches our hearts Lord, maybe it's even things that we have not thought about in years, God. Would you recall those to memory? Lord, pains that we have not been healed from. Bitterness, Lord, that still needs, Lord, your powerful forgiveness. Would you bring our inner person into your searching light. And Lord, as David says, Lord, wash us. Cleanse us. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We don't have the power to forgive on our own. Lord, but through your sacrifice for us and now your spirit at work in us, you empower us to forgive. Lord, do that work this morning. Lord, do a deep work renewing and refreshing our lives. And I pray, Lord, for those, Lord, who have never experienced the flourishing, the fullness, the joy of following Jesus. I pray that they would begin to experience it for the first time as they take your word at the heart level. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to do this work this morning.